You're listening to audio from Church of the Incarnation. To donate to our ministry or find out more, please visit incarnationcfl.com. Let's pray. Oh God, we do rejoice in that good news. You, O oh King, are coming. You're coming back to your people. You're coming back to your created world. You're going to make everything sad come untrue. You're going to rule and reign an eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace. You're going to wipe away every tear. No more sickness. No more shame. God, that is good news. What a gift that is to us as we prepare hearts this Christmas season. Lord, I ask that you would turn our hearts to that truth this morning, that the teaching and preaching your word would be your words of life to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, we're in week three of an Advent series, and it's a series on heaven. That's what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about heaven, and, and here's the title of the series, and I, and I think it's also the way the New Testament and the Old Testament describe heaven uh, in a biblical sense. Heaven is this, the king is coming. Now, you, you got to remember that Advent means coming or ar- arrival, right? And, and, and this, this idea of of the king coming, the king arriving, that's Adventus, that's what that means, that, that's actually the way scripture speaks of heaven, right? So if we've talked about this for three weeks, but that's not our view of heaven. Most of us uh, have sort of grown up watching kids' cartoons in, in such a way that we have this view of heaven that it's this sort of cloud land, never-never land, disembodied world where souls float away to be with God, maybe, you know, sprout angel wings and sing forever. And uh, that sounds great and all. But I believe the biblical view of heaven is, is going to be a whole lot more fun than that. Um, it, it's actually God adventing to us. Now look, there's all kinds of details about this advent that I don't have time to go into in 20 minutes, right? Um, there's all kinds of stuff that the scripture says about what it's going to look like for Jesus to return. But the bottom line is, we can rest our hat on this, okay, details aside. Um, don't know when he's coming, don't know all the specifics of how he's coming, but the New Testament and Old Testament is crystal clear that Jesus is returning. He's adventing physically to this created world, and that you and I, and all those who've loved his appearing, that's the way the New Testament speaks of it, who've waited and longed for his appearing, are, are going to live with him in a recreated physical place that's going to look a lot more like this than it doesn't. I mean, there will be trees there, all the things, and your view of heaven should be this, that God's going to redo everything that was ruined in the Garden of Eden. So if if you got a view of heaven that's sort of like a cloud land where you float around, your your feet never touch the ground, that's not the biblical view of heaven. It's going to be much more fun with that. It will include fishing. (laughs) I I think I've just about showed everyone in here the fish I caught yesterday, but just in case you didn't didn't catch it, I will just bring you up to speed. I caught a 46-inch redfish yesterday in a kayak with 10-pound tests. Come on, you want to see me flex, (laughs) right? I fought that thing for two hours. I was so tired of that fish, I'm literally answering the phone. People are calling, I'm like, well, let's just drag me around. Drug me around for miles. I got got the rod in one hand, I'm talking to somebody else on the other hand, right? It's just, it's the way we roll. But you know what? I expect that sort of thing to continue in heaven. I mean, Adam and Eve were given free reign in this beautiful garden of Eden, and God said, go for it. Don't, he didn't just you know, put plastic on the furniture and say, hey, you can't mess with this room, right? He said, create, explore, have fun. 
And I look forward to that happening again in heaven, okay? So, so what, what I've been advocating in this series is that you, in your, your thinking of heaven, you think of it as a two-staged process, okay? Now, I need to give credit to where credit's due. This idea of heaven as a two-staged process, it, it's, it's not my language. It comes from N.T. Wright in his really good book, Surprised by Hope, okay? So if you're, if you're interested in some extra credit reading along the lines of what we've been discussing the past three weeks, I would encourage you to buy N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, okay? And, and here's what he says. He says, look, I, I'm advocating for a two-stage view of heaven, that you think of heaven stage one as that place where believers who've died in the Lord are currently with him, okay? So when Jesus is on the cross and he says to the thief next to him, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, he's talking about heaven stage one. He's talking about that place, wherever it is, where believers who've died in the Lord are with the Lord right now. It's probably a disembodied place. It might be close to your view of sort of angels and people around the throne of God singing. That might be the way that place is, but that's not a forever place. That's a stopover before heaven 2.0 occurs, right? So after Jesus remains in that place with the saints who've gone before for some time. He's coming back to this created world with everyone who's died in the Lord. And at that point, heaven and earth kiss. All right, now, I just, I've got it in my notes here, and I just want to say it for anyone um, who might be hung up here. You're like, well, wait a second, Tom. So I go to be with the Lord, and then he comes back. Well, what about purgatory? (laughs) I mean, we've got some folks here who grew up in a tradition, you might have heard, like, this teaching of purgatory, right? Where, okay, I die, and then I go to a place where my sins are purged, and then I go to be with the Lord once I've been clean of all the filth of this life. Okay, I just want to tell you that that is absolutely nowhere in the New Testament or Old Testament. This idea that when you die, you've got to go to a place to be cleansed of your sins before you're worthy to be in Jesus' presence. Hey, here's the good news of the gospel. That the atoning, sacrificial work of Jesus, 100% fully and completely and forever, cleanses you of your sins through faith, On this side of forever, when you die, you will not go to a place where you're purged of your sins. You've already been purged of your sins. And the moment you die, you're in heaven 1.0, wherever that is. And I said in the past couple weeks, it's it's more of a dimension than a destination. It's not behind Mars somewhere in this physical created universe. It's It's a higher dimension. When the New Testament says, come up to heaven, when John gets this vision of the angel saying, come up into heaven, and he gets this view of heaven, it's not up like literally up there. It's a different plane that I think exists right here in our midst, where the angelic world and even even the spirit world just translates in and out like kids through a coat closet, right? If you get the Narnia reference. Yeah, that's, that's heaven, okay? But that's, that's the first heaven. The second heaven is when Jesus comes back from that place. And this is the way Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Listen, chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Then those who are alive, alive when Jesus returns, will be caught up together with the Lord, and we will meet him in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that there's going to be a real day where everybody alive on planet Earth is going to see Jesus break open that dimension of heaven and return, descend, just like he ascended. And at that moment, we're going to be caught up, and that word is raptura. 
in the Latin Vulgate. If you've ever heard any teaching of the, of the idea of a rapture, where people sort of leave the ground, right, their clothes fall off, and they go up to be with God in the air. This is where that comes from, First Thessalonians 4, that those who are alive are going to meet the Lord in the air at his coming. Remember I said last week, this word coming in First Thessalonians 4 is a very important term in the New Testament, and it's the word parousia. And it means the arrival of a victorious king. So the idea is anyone who's alive is going to go up and meet the Lord in the air, just like if you're in a walled city in the first century and your king went out to fight a victory or a battle, that you would, from the walls of that city, just wait for his appearing. Is he going to live or is he going to die? Remember, there's no internet, there's no satellite TV, there's no drones. You have no idea whether your king is going to die in battle or whether he's going to return victorious. So the moment you see him on the horizon, what do you do? You break out of the walls of that city and you run out to greet him. That's what Paul's saying when he says, we're going to go meet him at his coming. We're going to run out to greet him and say, God, you won. You won the victory. But the very clear implication of Perugia is that then we will all turn around and come back to a city. We don't just float off to cloudless never-never land. We, we come back down to a physical earth where, the, and this is what I want to talk about this morning, where before Jesus redoes this physical place, remakes it in every way, transforms it into an eternal, beautiful kingdom. Before that happens, he judges the living and the dead. And I hate to be Debbie Downer on Christmas, but uh, you can blame the Anglicans for this, because this is where the readings take us this morning. Um, this idea that when Jesus returns, when we meet him in the air, and, he, and we come back down to this creator world with him, before he remakes it in every way, beautiful and without sin, he judges the living and the dead. If you're taking notes, uh, I want you to write this down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul describes this event, the return of Jesus and his judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, listen to this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, okay, that's an interesting word. Have you ever heard of the term apocalypse? Like, oh my gosh, it's an apocalypse, right? And we even think about the old end of the world as it's apocalyptic. We use that language. Where does that come from? It's a Greek word, apocalypsi. And, and this is Paul's language as he talks about the revealing of Jesus. When, when, heaven, when the dimension of heaven breaks open and we can see it with our eyes, when it meets this physical dimension, that's the apocalypse, which means a revealing, okay? When the Lord Jesus is revealed, he's already here, right? You see the connection between heaven and earth? He's already here but in a dimension you can't see. But when he's revealed, with his mighty angels and flaming fire, he will, listen to this, inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sounds pretty awful, right? This is the judgment. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's really bad news. Separated from the presence of the Lord. But then the text shifts. Already listen to this. And separated from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified by his saints and marveled at among all those who believe. The way Paul describes this second coming judgment is that it's going to be a terrible day. For all those who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus. But it's going to be a beautiful day 
a day of marvel and glory for those who have. And you should be asking the question, well, what does it mean to obey the gospel of Jesus? Let me check that box. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah, let's check that box. All right, I just, I just want to give you something to think about. Um, John chapter 6, right? So if you're taking notes, what does it mean to obey the gospel of Jesus? John chapter 6, John's having a discussion with someone in verse 29 that asks him this, Jesus, what must we do to perform the works of God? What must I do to perform the works of God? And Jesus says this, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he sent. If you want to know, like, okay, what, what does it mean to obey the gospel? Is it, it, does it mean, like, you know, walk old ladies across the street? Does it mean, like, pay my taxes on time? Does it mean give 10% to the church? Does it mean not cuss and drink and smoke or hang out with people who do? No, I think the work of God, the work of God, is to believe in the one whom he has sent. To turn your heart towards a Jesus who makes you clean. If, if you will do that, then the day of Jesus' appearing, his apocalypse, when he's revealed, will be a day of glory and delight for you. If you troll through the Old Testament, you're going to see this very same description. In fact, the, the way... Most of the prophets describe the second coming of Jesus, all right? And I've spent a lot of time through the prophets. There's 16 books in your Old Testament that are prophets, and almost all of them talk about this revealing the second coming of Jesus. And the way they talk about it is a day that's great and terrible simultaneously. I mean, Joel, if you want to read Joel chapter 2 and chapter 3, you're going to hear Joel say this, that the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming, where the Lord will gather, this is chapter 3, I'm paraphrasing, he gathers all the nations of the earth down in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the valley of decision, a symbolic place, okay, where from that place God will judge the nations, ready for this, while he is a refuge to his people, Jerusalem. So the way the Old Testament speak about the judgment that's coming is they speak of it this way, in a very physical way. They say there's going to be this city, it's oftentimes called Zion or Jerusalem, where God's people are resting secure and safe outside of the coming wrath. They're sheltered from it, from the walls of the city. And from that place, they're going to look out and they're going to see God judge the rest of the world. Now you, if you're paying attention, you see this in the book of Zephaniah. If you've got your bulletins, let's just turn there just for a second. Zephaniah chapter 3, like all the prophets, he's describing this great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, he's going to focus mostly on the greatness of it for those inside the city. But there's all kinds of hints of the terribleness of it as well. I just don't want you to miss it. You got your bulletin, Zephaniah 3 verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Now, all throughout the prophets, the word Zion is metonymy. Y'all are going to think I'm so smart. That means the same word as, right? It's metonymy for Jerusalem, the place where God's people dwell in safety, surrounded by the walls of protection, safe from the coming judgment and wrath. That's the picture that the Old Testament gives you of judgment. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout. O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. Look, verse 15, for the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has turned away your enemies. Man, there is a whole bunch of teaching out there about the judgment that goes like this. I cannot stand this stuff. It drives me nuts. That when you die, 
you're going to instantly find yourself in a big long line, right? And St. Peter's going to be there. He's going to be standing at pearly gates, right? He's got the keys to heaven. And he says, what are you doing here, rascal? Right? And he says, I want to get into heaven. He's like, all right, we'll stand in this line. And it's like 9,000 miles long. And when you get to the front of it, you're going to stand right in front of a very angry-looking Jesus who's going to say, what do you have to say for yourself, son? And you're going to mumble some stuff under your breath. And then on this huge pulpitron, right, at a basketball arena, four-sided screen, in front of the whole host of eternity, he's going to play the DVD of every awful secret thing you ever did. You following me? And then he's going to say, now, what do you have to say about that? And you're going, well, I don't know. And you say, all right, get in here, you rascal. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's the way you should think about this, that when you die, you're, that's what it means for you to face the judgment of God, that you're going to stand before him and that he is, when you, your first day of heaven is going to be a shame fest for the whole world to see. And what I'm saying to you is that I think is the most unbiblical thing ever. Because when I read the Old Testament, all I see are pictures of the redeemed people of God. And it's always a picture of the city. So don't get too caught up on that. Is God going to rebuild Jerusalem physically on planet Earth? I have no idea. And I'm not going to get into that here. That's a mistake for 10 years from now when someone listens to this video. <laughs> you said, what? <laughs> I have no idea. I think it's more of a, I think it's more of a symbol of God's people protected, whether that will happen physically or not, I have no idea. His people protected by his presence, safe from his judgment. If you read Galatians chapter 2, Paul's going to repeat a word in Galatians chapter 2. It's a New Testament book. He's going to repeat the word dekeasune, justified. He's going to say, through faith, and not through your own works or no work of the law, you have been justified. And he says it seven times in Galatians chapter 2 alone. You know what that word means? Here's what it means. It means in the courtroom of heaven, dekeosune, here's what it means. The God, God himself has brought the gavel down and has declared you innocent. He has pronounced innocence over your life. Well, that's not true about you. You are not innocent. But in and through the redeeming work of Jesus, when you stand before God, you are innocent. So what I'm saying to you, if you have this view of God's judgment where you're going to stand in this big lineup and he's going to play the DVD of your life, man, you're missing it. You have already had your day in court. And the verdict has been rendered. Not guilty. And so I know there are two verses in the New Testament about all of us appearing before the judgment seat of God. I know them, Romans 14, 11, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. I know those verses. But I'm telling you right now that if you do stand before the judgment of God, that here is what you're going to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my master. And that has nothing to do with you. That has everything to do, why am I wearing white? With the righteous white perfection that you wear in Jesus. Somebody who's feeling Baptist, say amen. amen. That's good news. Amen. But listen, there's another side of the story, okay? Zephaniah 3. Hang in there. Won't be long. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. I mean, Jesus even said it in if John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus, out of his mouth, in John 5, 24, said this, that anyone who believes in me has come from death to life and has not passed judgment. If you, go read it, John 5, 24, that anyone who believes in me 
has not judgment. You will not be judged. You've already had your day in court. You have passed from death to life. All right. That's why the prophet Zephaniah says, the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has turned away your enemies. Here it is, this beautiful Advent language. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Don't let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. I love this. He will rejoice over you with gladness and renew you with his love. Do you have that view of God? Do you dare to see God that way? That when he sees you, he literally sings over you with gladness? Will you allow yourself to be loved in that way? That's what the day of judgment is going to look like for you. He's going to sing over you with gladness. He will renew you with his love. Look, here it is, though. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach of it. Here it is, verse 19. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. It's a great and terrible day of the Lord. That the day when the Lord Jesus is revealed, as he sings over you, because you're covered in his blood, clean, righteous, as, as, he, as he loves you on that day and as you rejoice in his appearing, that he's also going to, once and for all, judge the living and the dead. That anyone who's not loved is appearing, anyone who hasn't obeyed the gospel of Jesus, is going to face what all of us deserve to face. Death. Eternal death. Remember the rules that God set up for the universe. Way back at the very beginning of scripture. Adam, Eve, you eat from that tree. That's called sin. And the day you do it, you die. So, it's a, it's a rather sobering thought to think of in a, in a Christmas season, all right? But I, I just want to leave you with the minor key tone of this reality and ask you are, you, are you willing to take this seriously? How, what would it look like for us as a church to care about our neighbors enough such that we want them to be on the great day of the coming of the Lord and not the terrible. You know, I've, I've been saying this a million times, and you might think that it's some narcissistic recipe for church growth that I keep saying, hey, you should tell your friends about Jesus. Let me just be real clear. I, I don't care if your friends come to the church. And in some sense, if they do, that's just more trouble for me, and I get paid the same anyway, so who cares? All right? Well, that's the great thing about the Episcopal Church. They pay us way too much, even if there's no one here. It's awesome. Love this job. But, okay? So I'm not, talk I'm not talking about church growth. I don't care about church growth. Here's what I care about. That my neighbor spends eternity in the glorious presence of God and not death. And that, that's a reality. I mean, I remember the, the second the Lord revealed this to me, I was at a stoplight in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm thinking about judgment, and I look around, and I'm like, oh my goodness, every single one of these people at a stoplight, the corner of Sharon Amity and Albemarle Road, 
are going to face God? Where will they land? On which side of this day? And it just motivated me to do weird things. And, and I'm still doing them. I mean, I, I got a buddy. I mean, this will freak you out. I, one of these days, it's going to happen to you. I'm going to accidentally knock on your door. Because one of my buddies, we go around, we knock on doors in Oviedo. Man, if I knock on yours, you better give me the right answer. All right? I mean, we, we literally knock on doors. And we just say, hey, have you... Do you ever, do you, have you ever thought about spiritual things? Like, can you, you want to just have a spiritual conversation? Like, we're here. You know, I'm a pastor. I really do believe that Jesus wants to change your whole life. Have you ever thought about that? Like, do you want to talk about it? Like, I do that. That's weird. Why? Because I believe in the things we're just discussing. Yeah, let's pray, huh? <clears throat> Lord, uh, what a, what a. What a crazy thing to think about, God, that you're, you are returning physically. And Lord, I just pray for someone here who's had this view of, of judgment. They're going to stand in front of you, and they're going to start heaven with a shame fest. God, would you erase that? Replace it with the truth of your grace. And then in and through that encouragement, I just love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. That he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. Though we ourselves are well known to God. That, that the, the idea of judgment to Paul, it doesn't produce fear in his heart because he knows who he is. He, he knows he's covered by your redeeming work. But it does pr produce in him a zeal to tell their people about you. To be an ambassador for your kingdom. So Lord, I just pray that you would deposit that into our heart, that you'd wake us up, care about our neighbors, that we would do strange things like invite them to church, invite them into our own lives, love them when they don't deserve to be loved, and that you would change the world one heart at a time. Amen. Thanks for listening. Would you like to connect with our church? Join us online or in person every week at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit incarnationcfl.com to learn more. Have a great week.